Hi, everybody. Welcome back to the show and a big thank you, especially to our live viewers. My name is Lauren. This is my producer, Liam. Hi. And uh, we have a fun show for mm -hmm. you guys today. Uh, we're going to start off talking about Brian Sims, the state representative who uh, has a penchant for harassing pro-life people, it seems. Then we're going to get into the issue of kiss and cousins. No, I'm... I'm, I'm not kidding. We're actually going to talk about the idea of cousin marriages and cousin relationships because we like to keep things varied on this show. And then we're going to talk about whether bisexuals are gay enough for the LGBT community. Apparently, feelings are mixed on that. Mm. Um, and uh, yeah, if you are watching this, you want to support the show, then you know, like, share, subscribe, comment helps us out a lot. And if you want to really, really help us out and keep the lights on, you can head over to blazetv.com forward slash Lauren and uh, use the code Lauren to save money on your annual subscription. You get our show, Steven Crowder's show, uh, Glenn Beck, who else? Uh, Ali Stuckey, Graham Allen. I feel like it's easier to name people who aren't on Blaze TV than people who are on Blaze TV, mm -hmm. since there are just so many of us now. And if you are watching us live, then another way you can support the show is by giving us a super chat. We appreciate that a lot. And we're not going to be stopping during the show to take them because it kind of it makes things hard to just run through. But uh, we will be getting to all of them at the end of the show in a little Q&A segment. Uh, I think we're good. Good, right all yep. the housekeeping all right uh mm -hmm. one more thing i want to mention before we get into it i am sick again today she's always sick i'm okay well uh i'm not saying that liam got me sick but i uh, liam was sick and then coincidentally later i was sick with mm. the same symptoms make of that what you will well last time i got sick then you got sick we had totally different symptoms but i still got the blame no i so. i keep telling you you get better faster than me, so your symptoms aren't as severe because I have the immune system of like a, a sickly African child. Yes. It's, I think the future way bad. that I'm dealing with it, though, is I don't tell you when I get sick, and then we'll see what happens. You'll be cured. Okay. I mean, I mean I'm not saying there's anything to that, but I will say when you texted me that you were sick, I started to feel sick like exactly then. But I'm not a hypochondriac. This is very real, not in mm -hmm. my head. Um, okay, so Brian Sims, he is a Pennsylvania state representative. So he's it's, it's not the federal government, um, just, just for the state representative. Um, he's been everywhere on social media lately. Uh, apparently, there, there have been several videos, two of them, where he has confronted people who were outside Planned Parenthood. Uh, we're going to show you a video clip in just a second, but for anyone who's listening to this on an audio-only device, uh, first off, we love you. Thank you for listening. But just to set the stage in the first clip, there is an elderly woman that he seems to be kind of like trying to get in her face and confront her, but she's trying to ignore him, and we'll, we'll play that now. And Sims here, and I'm once again out in front of... Planned Parenthood of Southeastern Pennsylvania. Today's protester, now, she is an old white lady who's gonna try to avoid showing you her face. Shame on you, what you're doing here is disgusting. This is wrong, you have no business being out here. These are the kind of attacks that we can expect on Planned Parenthoods in the current administration. Shame on you, ma'am, for standing out here thinking you know what's right for other people's bodies. And don't convince yourself that what you're doing isn't extremely racist. How dare you? This is grotesque. This is the hiding, shameful face of those that judge at Planned Parenthood. And it's disgusting. 
a bunch of pseudo-Christian protesters who've been out here shaming young girls for being here. Right. And so here's the deal. I've got $100 to anybody who will identify any of these three. So we're I'm going to donate to Planned Parenthood. I'm going to donate to Planned Parenthood. So look, a bunch of more. white people standing up in front of a Planned Parenthood, shaming people. Really There's nothing Christian about what you're doing. I'm nothing Christian. Uh, seems weird to me that he keeps bringing up race into yeah, that. Yeah, he really, like, he's he really injecting really... it too really does and it's strange especially in like the first confrontation with the elderly one is like Whoa. all right we just have two white people here talking to each other i don't know why he's making this about race um but anyway if you're if you're looking at him and thinking hey that guy seems kind of familiar uh he is actually the guy who uh when was this uh last year or something like that uh sent out a tweet which we have up right now mm -hmm. Uh, when Mike Pence was going to Pennsylvania, he said, official welcome, Mike Pence VP. Let me be the first to officially welcome you to the city of brotherly love and to my district. We're a city of soaring diversity. We believe in the power of all people, black, brown, queer, trans, atheist, and immigrant. So get bent, then get out. You know, up until that last sentence, it was actually kind of nice. But then mm -hmm. he also included this lovely picture uh, of him. Well, I mean, if, if you're watching this, you can see for yourselves. And if you're listening, he's uh, essentially flipping Mike Pence off. Yeah. 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 So just like all, an all hero. around fuzzy, yeah. cuddly, uh, warm guy. Mm -hmm. I Honestly, it, it, that could have been like satire from like The Office in that first video. While he's walking <laughs> around like this is the face. If you can't, if you couldn't see her, if you're on an audio only platform, the woman is like very meek, saying nothing. Yeah. Praying silently on the, the rosary. You know, this is the kind of attack we can expect. Yeah, he just, he kind of just screams one of those progressives who yes. is so progressive and tolerant, he will oppose his political opponents by any means necessary. Yeah. Like, wh whatever that may be. You know, he calls for the docs of the teenagers mm -hmm. um, in, in, in the other video. And I was looking through some of his tweets after this started getting shared around because once this was kind of out there. I had so many people tagging me in this, being like, right. you got to talk about this. You got to talk about this. I was going through his profile. Um, he seems to have some serious anti-Christian sentiments, this guy. Uh, in one of the tweets he put out, he referred to uh, pro-life people as like baby cagers and Bible thumpers. Um, just saying, uh, if you're going to go the whole, oh, you're a baby cager route, it's usually not good to kind of tie that with your pro-choice argument because it kind of, in my opinion, puts your your care for children on, on questionable grounds. Um, okay, so we're, we're going to break this down. First off, tries to bring race into this a lot. That's a really weird angle for someone who is like outside of Planned Parenthood to, to take, right? Because it's yeah. actually, it's been argued by people um, who are African-American themselves that, you know, supporting the industry, the abortion industry is actually a huge component to reducing the number of black Americans out there since black yeah. people are actually overrepresented in abortion statistics. Well, yeah, it's a, it's a huge problem as a whole, right? Yeah. Because you do have, I think, 70% of, of blacks born in America born out of wedlock. Now. Yeah. Yeah. Around and, that. and I've now these are all stats that I'm, I wouldn't, you know, bet my life on, but I've also heard the stat that about 50% of um, blacks that are, um, what do you call that? Facing an unplanned pregnancy? <clears throat> no, yeah, when you have a, when you have an unplanned pregnancy, they're yeah. terminated. About fifty percent of them are. Yeah, so, I, I've heard yeah. similar stats. Um, so yeah, I mean, I don't think it's white supremacists to oppose black babies being aborted. Maybe just my opinion. Um, and also, like Matt Christensen, who I've spoken about a lot on this show, huge fan of his. Um, he made a video about this, and he kind of pointed out, like in in his video, uh, Sims is 
kind of making a big deal about, oh, how dare this woman tell other people what to do and shame them for exercising their First Amendment right. Mm-hmm. I mean, it kind of seems like she was just exercising her own right, right? So it's kind of like who shamed who first. And, uh, you know, once this started circulating, obviously a lot of pro-life people really took issue with it. And actually because of these videos that Sims released himself, and I find that interesting, like you, you're the one who was filming this, like you thought that this would make the other person look bad? Like, really? Uh, Anyway, um, since this was released, and of course a lot of pro-life people took issue with it, um, there is actually a pro-life rally now planned outside that same Planned Parenthood uh, for 11 a.m. this coming Friday. Uh, Lila Rose, who we've we've had on the show, and her organization Live Action is going to be there. Jack Posobiec is going to be there. Graham Allen, Matt Walsh, they're all going to be there. Um, After this caused a little bit of an outrage, Brian Sims did... I don't want to call it apologize. It's, yeah. that's, it's a pseudo-apology, I think that, you could Yeah, call it. that's not what he did. But he did release a statement in response to all of the controversy. And uh, we'll let you guys hear that. And I have seen firsthand the insults, the slurs, the attacks, and the racism that those protesters aim at mostly young girls going there for clinical care. Care that those of us on the outside can never understand. And last week was no different. What I should have shown you in that video was protesters gathered together to pray at, not to silently pray for people coming in and out of Planned Parenthood as they intercepted them and harassed them. As a Planned Parenthood volunteer and as a supporter, I fully understand, respect, and appreciate the non-engagement policy that they have. And I would never want to do anything that interfered with the care that they're providing to their patients. As an activist and an advocate, I know why pushing back against harassment and discrimination are a must, even when they're uncomfortable. But last week, I wasn't a patient escort. I was a neighbor and a concerned citizen, and I was aggressive. I know that two wrongs don't make a right, and I can do better, and I will do better for the women of Pennsylvania. Yeah, not much of an apology there. But I, I you know, with this story, I do just want to say something about pro-life protesters because I think for a lot of pro-choice people um, pro-life protesters have a very bad reputation right yes. uh, and to be fair I have seen videos of pro-life people saying things like you're going to hell sorry <clears throat> well one of the one of the major I think it was the highest trending reddit post yesterday was about outside of another Planned Parenthood or, or uh, another abortion clinic of some mm-hmm. sort where there were people who were way over the top in terms yeah. of how they approach these things. Yeah, saying stuff like you're going to hell, murderer. Pretending to be nurses and walking up with a clipboard yeah. and just berating people. And I mean, I've seen videos yeah. of like people being spat on going into Planned Parenthood clinics. And it's like, I'm not saying that that's what these people that Sims w- was confronting were doing. It seems like they were just praying. Um, but still, I-, I wanted to say a word about that. And look, if you're someone who's pro-life, you're pro-life because you believe that a, a fetus, an, an unbirth, unborn child their life is being terminated is is being ended with an abortion so i understand that you know the moral outrage and everything there but and even commend the action that they're taking in a sense that they want to take action to yeah like i i i i appreciate that you're you're willing and wanting to do something but at the same time with an issue like abortion if you're pro-life then you need to realize that the only way progress is ever going to be made is by changing people's hearts and minds and that's just not going to get done by yelling at people or berating people. And I say that like ser- completely serious. That's not going to change anyone's mind. It'll probably do more harm than good. Exactly, fact, right? exactly. Because right now the pro-choice movement is trying to craft this narrative that p- people who are pro-life just 
are angry, want to control women's bodies and hate women. Honestly, if, if they see clips of pro-life protesters just yelling at women, that really enforces that. If we want to change people's minds, um, you know, then we need to talk about the inherent value of human life. We need to educate people about fetal development, you know, just how fast things like a, a nervous system, circulatory system. That, right, actually. right. We, yeah. we did a video about that previously. Um, I think that's the way that minds are changed. And especially like if we're talking about a woman who is facing an unplanned pregnancy herself, um, we, we don't, yelling at them probably won't do anything. We need to assure them that they have other choices, that they have support. You know, adoption is a possibility. Uh, if, if they want to go through that, then there are different organizations that can provide the the money to pay for the medical costs. Um, there are educational scholarships if you do decide to go through adoption. Um, you know, there are parenting classes at crisis pregnancy centers. There, there are so many educational things. Educational contraception. A, exactly. There are so many things that we as pro-life people can do that don't involve uh, calling people going into Planned Parenthood clinics murderers because that is it's not gonna it's not gonna change anyone's mind it, it's it's really really not and I think just the optics alone are just terrible about that and uh, before we move on to the next story just kind of in other abortion news uh, Georgia recently passed a heartbeat bill and those have kind of been gaining popularity because uh, on the pro life side there's this big push to say like all right you know if if life doesn't begin at conception then where does it begin and that's a hard question you know scientifically i think we should be having it i know where i stand but i, I would like to see that debate get a little bit more uh, attention where we yeah. talk about all right if it's you know if it's not a conception then is it really up until the moment of birth that seems kind of arbitrary to me like is it going to be um when a fetus can feel pain whatever uh, a lot of new pieces of legislation they're saying heartbeat um that actually is at six weeks into pregnancy and so people who are pro-choice are looking at that and saying that is too early and uh, people like AOC have tweeted out, oh, that's only being two weeks late on your pregnancy. Period. Yeah. Uh, sorry, two weeks late on your period. Um, people who are pro-life hear, hear that and they say it's dehumanizing for the fetus. And I just wanted to kind of touch upon this issue a little bit because I feel like with abortion more so than any other topic, there's just miscommunication and people aren't interested in seeing the other side's point. Okay, so... If you are pro-choice, please realize that with these heartbeat bills, uh, it's not about trying to tell a woman what to do. It is about recognizing that fetal development happens very quickly. And if the fetus does have a heartbeat, it's very hard to call it just a clump of cells. Yes, that does happen quite early on in the pregnancy, but it being it being early, I think, if, if you're, you care about the inherent value of human life, does not negate the value reality. of the fetus right. yeah, it's it's it may be an inconvenient reality but it is the the reality and i think when people who are pro-choice say oh six weeks pregnant that's merely just two weeks late for your period um i think pro-life people need to realize that they're saying that it, it really limits their window for getting an abortion um so like we can have this conversation i just hope that we have it in in good faith because i mean my, my standpoint is like you know if, if we are going to try to have some objective measure of okay, this is when personhood starts. I think a heartbeat is quite a good one. And even though it may be early in the pregnancy and inconvenient almost for a mother who's not expecting it, that doesn't change the fact that fetal development is what it is, right? And I would love to hear from pro-choice people because most pro-choice people aren't, you know, up until the the second they're, they're born, you can just go for it. Uh, you know, if you're watching this and you are pro-choice, if you don't support a heartbeat bill, then what would what would your 
you know, your cutoff be? That's the con- kind of conversation I want to have, but I understand it. It's not an easy question. Uh, okay, so next story, kissing cousins. Uh, this is a fun one. Uh, issue of cousins and dating has been going around online in in a few ways lately. I know that sounds weird, and I know in response to this segment, I'm going to get people saying, oh, why are you talking about this? Don't you have more important things to talk about? We just talked about abortion. Yeah. Very serious. We're going to be talking about elections and stuff. Let us have our fun. And also, like, we can see the numbers. Like, you guys like this. Like, you like these topics. They're weird. <laughs> and it's, it's a yeah. guilty pleasure. But come on. Like, we we like this. Like, you're watching this if you're complaining. So don't, 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 uh, don't say you're too good for this. Um, okay. So on Reddit, and we have a uh, post that we can pull up. There was a... Today I effed up. It, it's kind of this forum where people post their mistakes. Someone uh, posted, Today I effed up by dating my cousin for five months. Uh, This person writes, I was talking to this guy on Hinge who had the softest of hazel eyes, and at the time, I thought he was the one. Um, After exchanging a few messages, we decided to go on a date, and one thing led to another, and we were a couple. We dated for about five months until the horror struck us that we were relatives. Long story short, we took our families out to a restaurant, and when my father stood up from the table to introduce himself to my boyfriend's mother, his face turned completely white, as he was looking directly at his cousin." i.e. his uncle's daughter. It took her a second to realize as well. Since my family and his family live on opposite sides of the states, our parents hadn't seen each other in about 30 years, and it was a coincidence that my boyfriend and I moved to the same city. We could tell something was wrong the way our parents looked at each other, and they informed us that we were related. Even though we loved each other, we decided it wasn't right to do. This was one of the hardest breakups of my life, but it had to be done for the sake of our family. I told my friends that it didn't work out and silently removed everything from social media. Uh, So that's awkward. Yeah, definitely. And I can't, I mean, it's not really their fault either. No, no, they, they, they didn't know. But I. there were quite a few people in the comments asking like, so did you, did you finish dinner? Like, did you just turn this into like a family reunion type of thing? Uh, what do you do? And that's not the only time this has come up. I'm not, we're not going to include too many clips of this, maybe one later, but copyright reasons. Dr. Phil actually also recently had on a pair of first cousins, first cousins, who were married and they knew, like they grew up to each other, up with each other, perfectly aware that they were each other's cousins. Actually, um, in the episode, they talk about how one of the draws of the relationship is they had a really good understanding of each other's family backgrounds. And it's like, well, that's because you are each family. other's yeah. family backgrounds. Um, and so they were on the Dr. Phil episode because they're actually trying to, they are from Utah where it is illegal to marry your first cousins. And they had to go to, I think it's Colorado to get married. And they're like trying to push the Utah state legislature to legalize cousin marriages. Um, so do you, do you think second cousins should be able to marry? Second cousins? Yeah. I mean... It's tough because I think if you do that over the long term, that's probably not a very good yeah. strategy. Um, but if you accidentally marry a second cousin and you don't know it, which could probably happen, like, yeah, right? Like I mean, you it never meet with their these... families, yeah. but they actually get married. And then like the likelihood of you actually having birth defects is pretty low. Yeah. Um, it's, not, it's it's still higher than than usual. It's not good, but it's it, if it happens once, it's not the end of the world, probably. Yeah, and and so in, in case anyone isn't familiar with the term second cousin, because I know I wasn't for the longest time, um, it's if your cousins had kids and you had kids, your children would be second cousins, sort of mm-hmm. thing. So you're quite. I mean, I'm not going to say distantly related, but I. I 
Okay, so second cousins, as far as I could tell, I was looking this up. They are, it is legal to marry your second cousins uh, pretty pretty much everywhere. Um, people on that Reddit post, at least, seem to be very like, hey, if you loved him, why, like, what was, what was wrong? You know, it's legal. Um, I think if, you know, if someone was already married or they were already engaged and they found out they were second cousins, I might be like, well, you know, just just leave it like if you already have take kids it, take already. Take the secret to the grave. Exactly. <laughs> um, but considering that this specific couple had only been dating for five months, yeah, I would call yeah, it off. Of course, of course. Like, like, it's only been five months. There's plenty of other people in the sea who aren't your second cousin. Just don't, you know, find someone else. Find find a non, non-relative non to marry. Uh, that, that does suck though. But I, yeah, I would just, at least for the satisfaction of knowing that I didn't marry my second cousin, um, do you think first cousins should be able to marry? Mm, I, I would say no. But mm. what, what about you? Do you think that we could stop yeah, two I, consenting adults from marrying each other? I do not think first cousins should be able to be married. And actually, I was looking up. I I have the weirdest search history most of the time because of like our show and <laughs> yeah, the stuff we true. talk about. I was looking up like laws relating to cousins being married. We and are not so, related. Yeah, we, we, are, we are not <laughs> Just so related. You know. Yes. Um, so, okay. In Britain and Canada, it is legal for cousins to marry each other. Um, weird. Didn't know that. Uh, in the States, it's it's pretty mixed, it seems. Like, it's kind of almost 50-50 uh, whether it's legal or illegal. And actually, some states actually have laws where it's legal for cousins to get married, but only if they're past a certain age. Okay. Um, so, yeah, obviously... How can you stop two consenting adults? There's a libertarian argument here. Right. Who's getting hurt, really? Um, just society. Uh, right. Because, I mean, if if you can argue that two consenting cousins should be able to get married, because why not? Then there's really no reason why, like, a brother and sister can get married. If we're going full yeah, libertarian. No, all the way, yeah, and for not, sure. I mean, not even just uh, brother and sister. On a previous Dr. Phil episode, I think there's also been, like, a, a mother and a son sort of wow. thing. Yeah. Um, I get, bet you guys didn't know what you're tuning into today. Um, yeah, no, I'm I'm totally fine with saying don't marry your family members. If that makes me an authoritarian, uh, then then so be it. And because it's not just that there's two people involved in the relationship and it's icky. Uh, the the issue I see really is also the genetic component for their children. Okay. Right. Because I mean, so it's like inbreeding is a real. Thing. But you still think that like. Like two like brothers or sisters getting married would be wrong. Well, yeah, just because conceptually, I think the sanctity of family needs to be protected. Like okay. family is one of the bedrocks of our society, and allowing incest, I think it actually weakens the familial bonds because it kind of leaves them open to the whims of romantic relationships. And romantic relationships, most of them are not going to be as strong as your like your your blood relatives. Boyfriends and girlfriends come and go. And I think trying to like mix boyfriends and girlfriends with your family, it kind mm. of leaves your family connections vulnerable. Yeah. And, and yeah, it probably also, I think, would lead itself to more like abuse with children in the family. Yeah, exactly. The, you know, there's also up. the issue of, of power dynamics. Right. We've we've talked about on the show before in yeah, relation to yeah. relations. It's like definitely if like if, you know, there's a mother and a son or an aunt and a nephew, Game of Thrones. Or older sister and yeah, there's gonna whatever be it is. Power you know? dynamics yeah. in, involved there. So and actually, um, so on the Dr. Phil show, the uh, the husband of the the guy who had married his cousin, he was actually lobbying very hard that the idea that uh, the the children of two cousins who are married would be 
would have a higher risk for genetic defects. He was saying that that was, you know, overblown, et cetera, et cetera. Uh, there was actually a doctor on the show who kind of believed very firmly that, no, it's it's accurate to say that there's an issue there. And we have a clip of, of her describing the the risks associated with inbreeding between cousins. There's additional things you have to think about. It's not just when your child is born. So you have an increased risk of miscarriage, an increased risk of having a stillborn, an increased risk of early childhood death, increased risk of these congenital anomalies. But now you, let's say you potentially have a healthy baby. You have a lifetime risk of increased risk for everything that's genetic. Everyone carries around bad genes, right? If you meet Joe Schmo at a church or wherever you meet Joe Schmo and you get married and you have children, the chances are that your bad genes are not the same. But you share an aunt and an uncle. You share common relatives. So the chances that your bad genes are similar are so much higher. Yeah, so she she's obviously not pro-cousin loving. <laughs> um, and, you know, I think it's, it's also important to distinguish, like, it, you may say, oh, but I know these two cousins who have a kid and it's fine. I don't know how many people would say that, but but say you do. There, there's also the issue of like kind of the compound effects over many generations. Yes. And in the UK specifically, I know that the Pakistani community has a disproportionate number of genetic defects uh, in in their births because it's like they culturally it's common for them to marry their cousins. Yeah. And it's like you know maybe once that's fine. Yeah. I mean debatable, but you know a cousin who was born of cousins who was born of cousins then. The likelihood They're of problems. a lot of genes at that point. I mean, just yeah. think of European monarchies, right? I mean, yeah. that's another example where they had a lot of problems. Yeah. So. But do you think that, so you think that we have a right to stop people from, because we we're just talking about abortion, right? Yeah. So, but we have a right to stop people from conceiving children that would have I don't know, undesirable traits or something like that. Well, if, if it's the case of incest, yes. Okay. Yeah. Because I mean, I think. A, the, the heightened risk for genetic defects can't be ignored. And then B, I think we need to talk about the psychological trauma involved of knowing that you were the product of incest. Mm -hmm. Like, yeah, this is my uncle slash dad and this is my mom slash aunt. Yeah. I I wouldn't want to navigate that. So, uh, yeah, we would love to know what you guys think. Do you think uh, second cousins getting married? Okay, not okay. How about first cousins? I'm very much of the belief that there's there's so many people out there. Like there's so many people out there. Just mm -hmm. and also to be clear, like we're not advocating for abortion of these people. We're just saying no. stopping from conceiving. Yeah, like just that's, yeah. Like yeah, it's it's one thing if you're you know your parents happen to have been related. That's unfortunate, and I feel like a very select problem. But mm -hmm. I think it should be something that's that is uh, discouraged, and I'm. 100% supportive of it being a cultural taboo. If that makes me an authoritarian prude, I am okay with that. Uh, all right, uh, final story we're gonna go through before we get to the Sargon interview is a attack on bisexuals. Uh, so the LGBT community, lesbian, gay, transgender, bisexual, that yes. was out of order, but yes. Um, apparently it's a common theme that bisexuals are kind of... Uh, sometimes attacked by gays and lesbians for not being queer enough. And we have a an article that was uh, in The Spectator by Julie Bindel, who is a, a, a radical feminist who at one point actually alleged that like marriage was a sexist in institution. So we have this, this uh, piece where she essentially calls out bisexual women. She says, 
Nothing riles me like the Miley Cyrus approach, which is to be heterosexual, married to a man, but claiming to be queer and edgy. In a recent interview about her marriage to Liam Hemsworth, she said, we're redefining, to be effing frank, what it looks like for someone that's a queer person like myself to be in a hetero relationship. What a load of pretentious baloney. Cyrus is as heterosexual as the next woman. Labeling herself queer is as convincing as me deciding my dog is a goldfish. While I get the envy that many women feel towards those of us that shop around the corner, I don't know what that means, <laughs> uh, it is a bit low to want the attention for being special while being boringly straight. Real lesbians commit to the role. There is no running back into the arms of Nigel for us. If the fake lesbians want an authentic experience, perhaps they could persuade their parents to reject them or have their female friends shy away from a hug as though they are being perved upon. So it seems like here her one of her contentions is that bisexual people aren't discriminated against enough or they have it too easy. Yeah, I don't know. But it's pretty clear that there's the oppression hierarchy here. Right? No, yeah, like, for You're not sure. part of the cool people club. Yeah. Definitely. And um, it, it's almost like they're purity testing yeah. their gayness. And we have we have another article from the Daily Beast, and it kind of touches upon the same issue more. It's called Why Bi Bisexuals Feel Ignored and Insulted at LGBT Pride. And it, according to them, 43% of bisexual women in a 2016 survey conducted by the dating app Her said they felt comfortable at Pride as broadly first reported. The particularly strong stigma around bisexual men doesn't make it any easier for them to attend Pride either. In fact, studies suggest that bisexual men are considerably less likely to be comfortable being out than bisexual women, who are in turn less likely to be out than gay men or lesbians. Others have to deal with the myth that all bisexual people are just on the way to coming out as gay or lesbian, a version of the age-old stereotype that bisexuality is not in and of itself a valid sexual orientation, but rather a phase. Okay, so I have a lot of a lot of feelings uh, about this because, you know, what Julie Bindel is saying, I think it is common, not common, but I, I think it does happen nowadays where some women, especially those who like to think of themselves as progressive and open-minded, may be more inclined to identify as, like, queer or sexual, sexually non-conforming yeah. for oppression points. I'm not, like saying that doesn't happen i wouldn't be surprised if that happened uh but at the same time bisexual people are real yeah yeah <laughs> like, for sure that that is that is a thing that that exists and i don't think that just because someone who is bisexual is in a relationship at the moment with someone of the opposite sex that makes them not bisexual like yeah because it's, it's your sexuality is based on who you're attracted to not who you are currently in a relationship with <laughs> Yeah. And isn't like sexuality, like one of the leading theories that these people advocate for is that sexuality is kind of a spectrum, right? Like you're somewhere, there's heterosexual, homosexual, and you often land somewhere in between. Yeah, well, right? that, that's what's interesting because on the other side of it, we have these activists who are in the LGBT community who are saying that I've seen studies that say everybody's a little bit bi. Right. Right. And especially women. Um, yeah, I think they've done that study, like they they show them pornography of straight like gay relationship i don't know i don't know exactly how they do it but they've they've shown that like women tend to respond to even lesbian porn and men i think it's it's less likely but mm -hmm. yeah like they they kind of say that everyone's a bit bi but at, at the same time a lot of people it, or maybe not a lot but it's not uncommon for people in the lgbt community if you're gay or lesbian to kind of feel like the bisexual people are uh, straights in disguise or you know they're not 
they shouldn't be included because they don't They're have it as easy. some rewards of status without getting the oppression or whatever yeah. it is. Yeah. And uh, actually, if you're at all familiar with the makeup community, which I don't know how many people who are watching this are, but uh, James Charles is a huge makeup YouTuber, uh, millions of subscribers. He gets millions of views, huge platform. Um, he recently got into some controversies surrounding the idea of bi erasure because the the cliff notes is that he claims to like straight men and there was a guy he was speaking to for months who claimed to be bi curious who flew out to meet James and spent Coachella with him and after that was over he said he didn't have feelings for James and uh essentially after that James was claiming that he was a con man who was never really interested in him and was just using him for attention fame money whatever um some people are saying that that's kind of a, a crappy thing to do because it's like it's erasing the the legitimate feeling that a lot of people have of questioning their sexuality, not sure, being sure if they're attracted to, uh, you know, both genders as, as opposed to just being straight. It's a... That's definitely part of it. No, it's yeah. not a part of it that I, from what you told me anyways, because believe it or not, I, I don't follow this stuff very closely. This, uh, weird. I, I know. But uh, apparently he was very much like... Wait, I paid for you to come down. Don't you, yeah. don't you owe me a little bit of something? Yeah, something? he he, he kind of did. And yeah. that's that's like a... It's a hard position to be in when someone you're into doesn't like you back. And then layering on top of that, them questioning their sexuality, it just seems like a really messy situation. I don't have any experience with it personally, but uh, I, do, I do feel kind of bad for these people who are by and you know for example that daily beast article was about pride parades and you know they want to go and that article actually in other places mentioned a you know a woman who is by going with her boyfriend and kind of feel like she was being given the stink eye for not being queer enough and actually this isn't i mean he's not bisexual but even like pete Buttigieg has been accused of not being gay enough I think we're we're at the point it's now because his partner took his last name or something. Yeah, yeah, like, or like because you know, he's a white male, oh, or because he's yeah. like not as flamboyant as I don't know. It's like we're at a point now where like the LGBT community, it's not really just about being LGBT. It's about like you have to live this certain lifestyle and be at least this gay and this many rainbows and this political ideology in order to fit in, which is is too bad because I think you know if ultimately if if you are you know gay whatever and you have you're having trouble coming to terms with your identity or you know issues with your family what you, you want to have someone to talk to if you're working something out it would be nice to have people who could talk to you about it who aren't gonna try to purity test you i don't know um so right now we're gonna come back in just a few seconds and we will have our interview with sargon and then after that we are going to be having our after show q a so we will see you guys in just a second Hey, Sargon, thanks for coming on. Oh, my pleasure. Thanks for having me. Yeah, nice for to sure. Again. Yeah, so you are, if for some reason someone doesn't know who you are yet, you're one of the original kind of YouTuber commentary people. You're one of the most popular as well, about a million subscribers. And not only that, but you're now actually running for a political office. Yeah, um, because I campaigned to leave the European Union, I voted to leave the European Union, and three years later, we're still in the European Union. And we have MEP elections to now do. I figure that I would stand just because to hell with them, so I can go and give them a piece of my mind. And uh, I think it's—I'm definitely giving them a piece of my mind at this point. 
Yeah, for sure. I mean, you've this campaign has been pretty huge. You've been interviewed by people like Sky News. And for our viewers who are either American or Canadian, would you mind just quickly explaining to them what the responsibilities of an MEP are? Because we don't really have a, anything similar uh, across the pond. <laughs> Yeah, they're they're not honestly they're not terribly important people. Uh, it's and they 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 tend to get very much sidelined in UK politics purely because they don't really do all that much themselves. Um, the European Parliament is uh, the the sort of rubber stamping body, so the Commission gives legislation uh, to the Parliament that the Parliament then votes yes or no on. Um, and because there's such a natural inbuilt pro-European majority in the European Union, um, effectively any of the Eurosceptic voices just get overridden just by sheer number. And so effectively I'd just be able to go there to use the platforms of bully pulpit to raise certain issues. And there are lots of issues that I want to raise and uh, obviously advocate for leaving the European Union. And I'll do everything I can while I'm there to just simply vote against anything that's against Britain's interests because that would be the, the responsible, dutiful thing to do. And that's about it. Yeah, you you would think that as a, someone who is from the UK, that trying to lobby for the rights of the UK wouldn't be a controversial thing. But uh, the press has had quite the field day with your with your campaign so far as anyone who's following your channel knows. Uh, I think it like, was four years ago, and I've been watching your channel for a long time. I met, you, you made some videos about someone named Jess Phillips, uh, who's a, yeah. a politician there as well. And uh, she was essentially dismissing and laughing at the idea of men's rights and men's issues. And I remember at the time uh, you were you were also frustrated with the whole victimhood culture that she was taking toward women. And so to do something really naughty, you, you said on Twitter well, to it her. Wasn't, it sorry, wasn't just that as well, just if I can cut in there. Um, she was also running a campaign of censorship called Reclaim the Internet, where uh, Ella Whelan from Spiked, I think, uh, summed this up best. Uh, she called it an insidious and Orwellian attempt to control internet dialogue by claiming in the name of free speech that it would be more appropriate to restrict speech, which is as Orwellian as it sounds. And I was demonstrating to her with this tweet that even if I say categorically I won't do something, it will be lied about and interpreted as if it's a threat to do the thing. So the very opposite of the statement. And, uh, and I had to make it offensive so that they'd listen. And they proved, they proved me right over and over and over. Mm -hmm. And I, so for anyone who, again, isn't ca caught up with this, uh, I think what you said was, I wouldn't even rape you or something to that, that effect. Um, something that makes it, I think, very clear that there would be no rape. So it's not so much a rape joke as a would not rape joke. The, sorry to, to cut in again. I don't mean to be rude. Um, the, 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 reason that it, the reason that it's phrased the way it is, is to specifically be offensive. You know, you can't say that's not offensive. It probably is going to be an offensive thing to say, but it's certainly not a threat. I guess to unpack that a little bit, I've watched some of the interviews that you've given to the press. By the way, I would never speak to those people, but, uh, you know, brave on you for doing that because you know that what they're going to try to do. But the, the offense yeah. that's been taken from that phrase, I think... You're right, it is offensive, but I don't think it's offensive for the reasons why people are trying to say it is. Because, like you said, it's very clearly not a threat, and it's not pro-rape. So you have to ask yourself, why is it offensive? And I think it's perceived as being offensive because you're implying that someone is unrapeable, as in, like, unattractive. Yeah, um, it's, it's essentially calling her ugly. Yeah, it's, yeah, which, which, which is why it's ex ex offensive for sure. But what's frustrated me watching this is that they're trying to paint it as if you are pro-rape you can call i think it's fair to say that you're not politically correct you're not ashamed of being offensive but to take that joke and display you as being pro-rape that's what i take issue with because that's that's you know taking it to a whole new level and that's what they're doing to you and there have been other articles as well um you know you've been painted as a 
pedophile or pedophile apologist, I think is maybe more accurate. Yeah, that's that that was when I was arguing against pro pedophile advocates. So when I oppose the thing, that means I'm for the thing as far as the media is concerned. But that that's actually um that's actually a less important subject because that was a fake dossier, very much like the Steele dossier for Trump actually. That someone obviously someone jealous in UKIP or someone closely related to UKIP had put together out of something like four different live streams where they'd taken like individual sections like out of context and then strung them together to try and make a contiguous sentence. And ironically, one of the one of the bits they'd taken out was me in the middle of saying they're going to take this phrase and say that this is my opinion rather than it representing the opinion of the person that I'm talking to or trying to represent. And it, on the stream, you know, the person I'm talking to, we laugh about that because, yeah, haha, you know, no one would be that dishonest. Well, here we are. It turns out they are. The people who are doing this, who are taking your words literally, do you think that they're they're doing they're doing this because they genuinely think that you are some sort of sexual predator who just so happens to be very public with his uh, his threats against women, or do you think they know exactly what you're doing and they're just trying to maliciously twist your words, right? Because, I mean, I, I, yeah. I doubt their integrity, but then again, I also doubt their intelligence, so I'm not sure which wins out it's in the end. It's definitely, definitely malicious. They know exactly what they're doing. The the, the person doing this is Mark DiStefano. Uh, he's a BuzzFeed writer, I guess, contributor, generously, um, and he knows precisely what he's doing. Uh, and the the thing that they're doing is kind of a game of Chinese whispers. So I'll say a joke. Mark DiStefano will decontextualize it and say he's commenting on the thing. And then another sort of you know partisan, high, you know, a further left wing outlet like the Huffington Post will say, oh, he's he's advocating or threatening. And then it blows up into this big game of like who can make it sound the worst for clicks because everyone they can see that their competitors are saying something fairly hyperbolic. Oh, they've got to go that one step further. And it's all about generating outrage and clicks from that point onwards. None of it's true, obviously. But the, the, the BuzzFeed author, Mark DiStefano, he knows exactly what he's doing. He's leading them around by the nose. He knows precisely what they're doing. And to be fair, all of these journalists probably are well aware of what they're doing. But there are doubtless going to be some who simply don't know what's happened and so have received like the information third or fourth hand when it's been ramped up to the most hyperbolic way it can be. And, uh, and so they're just, I mean, they're just literally parroting fake news. Mm -hmm. And I mean, for the people who are reading these things, do you think that the idea that you are this awful person is something that a lot of people in your uh, district, I don't, I'm not sure how the UK system works, but uh, who you yeah. would essentially be representing if if you win? Do you think that they, by and large, buy, buy into this or are they uh, on no. the anti-PC train? What's happening? No, um, a lot of people don't like political correctness. Um, and I think that the headlines are just too ridiculous to believe. I, I honestly... I mean, I've had people come up to me and say, what's this about? And like, it's lie, mate. And oh, right, okay, fair enough. Because, I mean, like, even in their own comment sections, if you read it's like, if true, then I'm very disgusted. And it's like, yeah, if true. You know, and you and even like the Daily Mail readers who are the normally the, considered to be the least credulous, pe uh, the most credulous people, um, even they are sort of like, well, if true, this is terrible. Yeah, of course, if true. But that's the point. And uh, I mean, I, you know, there's been no trouble in real life from this. It's, you know, no, no one no one's given me any trouble or anything like that, because honestly, their readership is not as broad as they think it is. But, um, you know, that's, I guess, something that stands to be seen at the polls. Mm -hmm. And uh, for for people who aren't maybe familiar with the history of UKIP, uh, Nigel Farage was essentially, I don't know, one of the main figures of UKIP, uh, Brexit yes. in general. He was he was huge in it. There was recently an interview between him and 
uh, was it Pierce Morgan, who I have mixed Absolutely. feelings about. Sometimes he's based AF, other times it's just awful. Um, yes. You know, they, they actually asked Farage about you specifically, and I think I Morgan referred to you as someone who, who was joking about raping uh, one of the MPs, and Nigel Farage came out very strongly and said, oh, you know, these fringe people, I told UKIP they should stay keep him out of it, shouldn't be running, et cetera, et cetera. How do you respond to that? Because I mean, I was shocked to see that. I'm, I consider myself in a lot of ways a fan of Nigel Farage. Um, but it seemed to me like surprisingly when it came to the issue of you, he was sort of parroting the mainstream media line, which, I mean, he, I think, likes to think of himself as quite anti-establishment. So I, I was surprised by that. Yeah, me too. Um, I think it would be a lot more sensible for people to say, well, it's a joke. I mean, you know, I, I have issues with uh, maybe a policy idea that I have or my politics in general. But the thing is, my politics are really not very dissimilar to Nigel Farage's. He's probably a bit more sort of he's probably a bit more right wing than I am, actually, politically. But um, but in general, I think we'd agree on the, the basics, you know, the, the sort of, you know, the funda funda fundamental principles are probably very similar. And there's no way Nigel Farage is going to pretend that he doesn't enjoy anti PC humor, because let's be honest. He does. And mm -hmm. I happen to know lots of people who have known him for 25 years, you know, people who founded the party with him. And they know that obviously off camera, he's exactly exactly what you'd expect. Well, he, he, he referred a to the, a former, a uh, the former president of like the EU parliament, Herman Van Rompuy or something as a low grade bank clerk, I think was the yeah. line that went viral when I was I was in college. And I thought it was hilarious. I thought it was great that he would be so uh, candid it, and un PC. But Exactly. He's he, he's got a sense of humor about him. And Piers Morgan also probably does as well and is well aware that I was telling a joke. And so it's amazing to watch um, Nigel Farage and Piers Morgan, people who, like you say, usually have quite good takes and are usually against political correctness and the sort of like suppression of comedy and the vilification of comedy. You know, the, these people are usually on the side of not being authoritarian in this way, watching them suddenly become incredibly politically correct. Oh, no, no, I, I disavow. That's terrible and vile. It's very disappointing. Very mm -hmm. disappointing, to be honest. And so you've obviously been faced with this question a lot, but I figure, heck, I'll, I'll ask you too. What do you say about the, to the people who say that you should apologize? Like, all right, you know, you, you weren't threatening her, sure, but you admit that it wasn't a nice thing to say. So, so why not just say you're sorry so you can move on with your campaign and we can all forget about it? I'll say that I'm sorry when she says that she is sorry for laughing at Philip Davies for daring to want a, a debate in Parliament to discuss male issues such as suicide, fatherlessness, family courts, all the sort of issues that are genuinely plaguing men and no one wants to talk about. Jess Phillips not only laughed in his face when he asked for that, but she actually used her sort of feminist sisterhood, as she described it in her book, within Parliament, to get the debate cancelled on some technicality of the way, you know, like, so, uh, you know, a, a checkbox wasn't checked on a form or something, some bureaucratic technicality. She actually got that debate stopped because of that. Now, I, you know, I find that really quite offensive. And if we're going to be apologizing for offense that's been given, Jess can start first by apologizing for that. Something you've mentioned as a positive aspect of UKIP before is that they are actually talking about the issue of free speech when really other parties are not. How do you think the issue of free speech resonates with most people in the UK? Because I think for people who aren't there, when we look at the media headlines, it seems like there's just been this clampdown. Is that something that British people by and large are supportive of? 
because I think a lot of Americans look at look at what's happening right now. They see people uh, being yeah. arrested or having cops into their house because of things they've posted on media, social media, and they can't believe it. Yeah, we, we are not a country that has free speech, as Americans understand it, um, or, or Canadians even, to be honest. Mm-hmm. Um, we are we are not that kind of country. We're, we're a country that has curated speech. We have hate speech laws. We have entire police wings dedicated to investigating things that were done on Twitter and Facebook, and they spend their time monitoring and policing this with um, ruthless efficiency in many ways. I mean, for uh, like, for example, I'm apparently being investigated by the police for the joke that I made about a week ago. So, uh, you know, what I don't know what to say. We're not, we're not a country that has free speech. But I think that when you go, I, I think the problem is that the, the regular person is still not necessarily like a heavy social media user. Um, and so they don't really know that, for example, in 2017, 1,500 people were arrested and charged with something they'd posted on social media, most likely a joke or whatever, you know, comment. Um, nothing serious, but, you know, thousands of people a year are actually falling foul of this. And I imagine that that number is just going to increase the more people use social media. And, uh, and when you ask people in principle, they are, of course, for free speech. So it's not that generally people are against the idea. I think it's just they don't realize what's happening. But um, I don't know. I think that uh, I think more and more people are becoming aware of the problem. And like you say, UKIP is actually the only political party in the UK that gives a damn about this issue. They do. They none of the other parties are interested in trying to protect the sort of the sanctity of comedy. You know, the idea that anything should be should be able to be made a joke of. Um, they're not interested in actually rolling back the sort of censorious and oppressive nature of political correctness none of none of the other parties have got the stones to tackle these issues but ukip does which is why i joined them well what do you what do you say to people then on the other side of that who believe in yeah you you know civil discourse that's great but when it comes to viewpoints that are genuinely hateful and bigoted and racist and actually misogynistic why would you advocate for people like that to be able to spread their hateful ideas wouldn't that just in the long term lead to a more hateful society and if we can all or at least most of us agree that that's not what we want can't we at least agree to limit the speech of those people no um they i i i I totally i totally um (laughs) I'm familiar with this, and no, that's the. I believe that that's the way to radicalize people mm-hmm. is to sense to sense them is to radicalize them, because even even if their ideas are terrible, what they they hold them with sincere conviction, and they just want to be heard. And so I find that it's actually the complete opposite way around. And the the, the quintessential example of this in the United Kingdom is when uh, the leader of the British National Party was given a place on a panel on Question Time in 2011. Uh, now the British National Party is an old party. And it's got its roots in neo-Nazism, unlike UKIP, for example, or the EDL. You know, these these groups do not have their roots in neo-Nazism. They've got their roots in sort of traditional sort of British values. Um, but the BMP actually does. I mean, like, for example, at one point, I think Nick Griffin, the leader of it, was actually investigated for being a secret Jew. Um, <laughs> yeah, exactly. Um, I don't know whether that came up, whether he was or wasn't. I, I don't know. But... Um, <laughs> The the point is that's never going to happen in UKIP. You know that's that it's a completely alien philosophy, um, and so, but when Nick Griffin was um, was allowed on Question Time, everyone got to hear his views and they were awful. I mean, you know, and it killed the party. It absolutely killed the party. Any kind of like 
resistance support that they received, you know, because they were obviously opposing the status quo, um, any support that they were receiving just evaporated because everyone's like, well, Jesus Christ, you know, we can't possibly, you know, these guys are actually awful. Why would we support them? And yet, and so, like, you kill a bunch of birds with one stone because they des desperately want to be heard and they have been heard, preventing them from further radicalizing. And letting them be heard allows the public to see just how ridiculous some of these ideas are. And honestly, I think that's why the radical left do so well, is because they actually do a good job of not giving the public the real sort of roots of their thinking. And the more that we can expose the sort of underlying roots from the radical left, the more that they, frankly, become detestable in the eyes of the public. So, um, so yeah, no, I, I totally am for platforming and revealing these ideas. I, I think that these things are not dangerous, not difficult to de um, debunk. I think they're ridiculous. And I think the public at large will find them ridiculous as well. Mm -hmm. I, I, of course, stand very firmly on the side of government allowing speech and not infringing on that right to free speech. But of course, in the 21st century, government isn't really the only, I guess, curator when it comes to speech, because wow. of course, we're on these social media platforms as well. Uh, you are someone who sadly has been kicked off Twitter. And not just that, but you even recently had your campaign account shut down from Twitter. This was an account that yeah. you weren't running. And I think your uh, one of your assistants who I was emailing with and setting this up mentioned that, you know, they can tell from the IP address that was used to access it that yep. it wasn't you. Um, how do you how does it feel to be someone who has been banned just like as an entity from from Twitter, not just as a user, as in they're worried about what you specifically might say, but now it's not even someone who's speaking on behalf of one of your campaign. They, they can't even be on Twitter. What's that like? Um, well, it just goes to show that we must be saying something they can't bear to have said because the, the campaign account, like you say, I never logged into it. I never used it. And Twitter can check the IP addresses on that. Um, but the problem for them, I guess, was it was getting quite a lot of traction. You know, it was getting a wide reach and a lot of people were seeing what was going on. And I think that that was their problem. I think they didn't like the fact that this was effective, frankly. And so just because it had my name on it, they decided they'd get rid of it. Um, this is what Joe Rogan brought up to Jack Dorsey. You know, what what kind of redemption could there possibly be? And Jack, and Joe, uh, Jack Dorsey agreed that there probably should be something but um, but that's easy enough to just say to Joe Rogan's face because, you know, what's he going to do? So you're not going to do it, you know, so, and then just backtrack on that and never follow through because why would you? You know, these are the, the again, like Jack's in the sort of the same sort of left wing bubble as the, um, the sort of people in Westminster, frankly. So they all basically agree on the same things. Free speech is actually a problem. I mean, like Silicon Valley is looking to move towards moving to, uh, in their own words, the sort of European model of curated speech rather than the American model of free speech. I think that's a terrible idea. I think that we need to go completely the other way for the American model. Um, but before we finish up, I did I did want to ask you really quick about the issue of immigration. And I'm someone who's you mentioned your videos a lot. People who watch my show know that I'm a fan of yours. And um, I I think you've described yourself as a centrist. I'd say that's that's about right. You get called a far right extremist, et cetera, et cetera, by these far left types um, for not only your your stance on things like feminism, um, which is that you're an egalitarian, but also on things like immigration, because you've spoke about, you know, um, migrant crisis happenings and things like that. What would you say to people um, to describe your stance on, on something like immigration? In your own words, how yeah, would you describe um, yourself? Yeah, I mean, the, the migrant crisis isn't immigration. 
the migrant crisis was uh, hypothetically a refugee crisis. Mm, good um, distinction. But only about thirty only about thirty percent of the refugees actually came from Syria. Uh, the rest came from other regions like Algeria or Morocco, where there isn't any kind of war going on. Um, but these people were described by the European Union as, quote, economic migrants, which means they were freeloaders. They were trying to just get on on the bandwagon because they were Muslims and spoke Arabic. How are you going to know that you're talking to a Moroccan instead of a Syrian if you're some sort of border guard in Poland or Hungary or something? You don't know. You know, it's you know, if you're German customs, how are you going to know? You know, these these people often come without passports. You know, they, they just expect the sort of charity of Europe. And they got it. You know, they absolutely got it. Um, but that's not the same as immigration. I mean, like, obviously, people who are actually fleeing a war, yeah, they should be helped. Of course they should. You know, people from Syria fleeing ISIS, yes, they should be helped. Um, and there are, there are already conventions and procedures on how to do that. Um, the economic migrants who are just trying their luck, no, they should be sent home because they're not trying to migrate legitimately. So they are actually illegal immigrants. They should just be sent home. Um, but when it comes to like the government policy on immigration, um, in my country, we have a problem with mass immigration. Um, it doesn't really matter where the people are coming from. What matters is the, the number in which they're coming. Uh, 300,000 a year over the last probably 10, 15 years <coughs> has increased um, Britain's population by something like seven or eight million people in a few, few years and out of 60, 60 million people or 58 million people or whatever it was before it started um, that's a lot you know and we've got we've got quite a lot of public services you know we've got social service um, for, for the elderly we've got it for unemployed people housing uh, from the government we've got the national health service of course and various other things and then it's not just that that's becoming, uh, honestly, a burden because people, hundreds of thousands of people a year who have not paid into those systems are now coming and using them at the free-to-use free to point of service. And so that's just a burden on the taxpayers of the United Kingdom. Um, but also it's the, the sort of like the infrastructure itself, like housing is becoming more expensive because of greater demand, but the building is not keeping up with it. Obviously, the number of jobs that are available there are always more people unemployed than there are jobs to be filled, um, or there were. Um, Brexit's changed this somewhat, in fact. And there are actually some really good stories about this, because after the Brexit votes, a bunch of European, Eastern European immigrants decided, well, OK, well, we're just going to go back to whatever Eastern European country we came from. And suddenly wages start rising and there are more jobs available obviously um because really like unskilled mass immigration is a form of class warfare mm. it's a form it's a way for the, the 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 super rich the business owning class of society to get as much work done as get their labor down labor costs down as cheaply as possible because i mean you know when you're running like a, an assembly line or whatever it is you don't care what the where the person comes from you don't care what they think and you're not interested in offering them a ladder up and out into like various other sort of piece of you know, opportunities for you they're just a unit on a conveyor belt putting bananas into a box or whatever you know like i've done myself um so it's i'm not i'm not against the idea of immigration i'm against the the scale of the immigration that we have coming in at the moment uh, i'd like to get that down to like fifty thousand a year or something like that something more manageable than three hundred thousand um and because I, I think it's really quite irresponsible and I mean, the, you know, these these people are also needed in their home countries to help build up their countries. If their countries are like third or second world countries and all of the sort of energetic, motivated people just move to another country to make money there, then 
the the home country suffers. And this is I've got a friend in Romania who he says, you know, that all of the young people of Romania just leave the country, leaving the country just generally aging and without, you know, the sort of like the, the sort of youthful energy you would expect to start make to start making the country a more vibrant and exciting place. So it seems like a way of keeping those countries down as well. When, and then when you think, okay, so we're keeping our own like working classes down, we're keeping those countries down, and it's the international business elite who are really profiting from this. And of course, the virtue signaling politicians and leftists on social media who get to somehow suggest that open borders is a moral perspective. I don't think it is. I think it's actually quite immoral what's being done here. Well, and I actually, think that like, we should really would, reconsider it. Would you mind speaking about that issue as well? Because I'm someone who's come out against open borders, mass immigration, actually a lot. I've tried to tone it down mm. recently because for a while it was like every video. But uh, what, what do you say to those people who say that it is a moral imperative that the West has to take in these people who come from backgrounds that are more economically impoverished than what we have here? Like, do you think that it is some sort of moral responsibility for Westerners to allow these people into our country? And, it, and if not, then how, how do you suggest that they, they ever become more developed? Because I think that's what a lot of people who are for these open border policies, that's sort of what's motivating it. They feel like they're an awful person unless they want to let them all in. Yeah, I mean, I don't agree that there's any moral imperative to let anyone into any country anywhere, um, apart from refugees, people who are actually legitimately fleeing a war. And like I said before, there's already a procedure for that. Um, no, no one has a right to go into your country. If anyone ever, if foreigners enter another country, and this, this is how I view myself when I go to other countries, I'm there as a guest. And if I were to move there, I would consider that a great honor and I'd be very grateful to the country that I went to. Um, but what they're asking for is just not possible. I mean, in all of the West, uh, in every, if you add up every Western country, uh, there's probably about 900 million people, um, which means that there are more people in India alone than there are in the entire West. Um, we just can't manage that kind of number. The, I mean, if if you look at some um, sort of Southeast Asia, you've got India, the sort of, I, I don't know how you call it, the, the Oceania sort of area, and then China. You're looking at over half the world's population, mm -hmm. and that's not a very big geographic area. And then you've got another billion people in Africa, however many, 800 million or something in South America. It's it's totally unfeasible for us to think that we can house the rest of the world in our countries. And once you say, well, we're going to have open borders, then what you've done is specifically removed any kind of limiting principle upon which you would operate to stop people from further coming in. So, I mean, once you've taken in 500 million people, why not take in another 500 million? What reason do you have? You know, and then we have to then ask, OK, well, how are we going to sustain the social services we have? Well, we can't. This is what Milton Friedman was saying. You can have a welfare state or you can have open borders, but one will destroy the other. You know, mm -hmm. that you can't you can't possibly expect to give out free welfare to the entire world. Your taxpayers won't be able to bear that burden. And so to say, oh, you know, we should let everyone in. Well, it's just a pipe dream. It can't happen without ruining ourselves. And I think if we ruin ourselves, we can't do any good in the world. And I think there is a lot of good that the West does. I mean, we can see that capitalism is the rising tide is actually lifting all boats. Um, you can look at the number of people who have fallen out of extreme poverty worldwide, and it's just plummeting. You know, the, the, the number of people in extreme poverty is just re drastically reduced. The West is making the world richer by just being wealthy and buying things from them. And that's a fine business model in which to actually save the world. If we if we are actually considering like that we have responsibility to other countries in the world, which I'm not saying that we do, but if we think that we do, then 
okay, well, it is incumbent on us to have strong, healthy Western democracies that are, you know, wealthy and exporting and importing at a great deal, a great rate in order to make the world a better place, because it is making the world a better place. Simply opening our borders and allowing everyone to come in and make life difficult in our own countries, that's not going to help fix the world. It's a it's a pipe dream. Mm -hmm. And actually, I, I like to bring up the example of China, which has seen extraordinary economic growth but it's it's been a different kind of growth than the sort of we'll just give you charity money like usually happens in yes. africa because it's actually come through economic development foreign direct investment and it may not be as touchy-feely feel good as what's going on with other humanitarian causes but i think in the long run it's been more effective in raising chinese people out of poverty actually potentially to the detriment of the west now because they are a huge competitor but uh thank you so much for your time coming on best of luck with the rest of your campaign so you have uh your youtube youtube channel sargon of a cod you have another one the thinkery not on twitter where else can people go to find you uh, you can find my Facebook page, which is just Sargon of a Cad, and um, I'm on Minds and Gab at the same address. Okay, great. Thank you so much. And again, thanks for coming on. Anytime. Thank you very much. So that's it for the show. Thank you guys so much for tuning in. And for those of you who are watching this live, be sure to stay on this stream because we're going to be back in just a few seconds with some exclusive Q&A. But aside from that, we'll see you guys next time.